What Came Next is intended for mature audiences only. Episodes discuss topics that can be triggering, such as emotional, physical, and sexual violence, animal abuse, suicide, and murder. I am not a therapist, nor am I a doctor. If you're in need of support, please visit somethingwaswrong.com forward slash resources for a list of nonprofit organizations that can help. Opinions expressed by my guests on the show are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of myself or Broken Cycle Media. Resources and source material are linked in the episode notes. Thank you so much for listening. As shared in last week's episode and part one of her story, Sarah Manos is a high school educator and victim advocate from Chicago. After escaping a highly abusive relationship and losing her canine companions Kirby and Daisy to her abuser, Sarah has chosen to share her experiences in and out of the legal and criminal justice systems to bring awareness to society and hope to other survivors. She also takes to TikTok to bring ultimate awareness to the women of Illinois, building a community of nearly 70,000 people. The Broken Cycle Media team is immensely grateful for all that Sarah does to teach victims different avenues of advocacy and justice. Please be aware that this episode does mention animal abuse and animal cruelty. From... June 2020 is when the height of this happened. October of 2020 is when he pled guilty to violating my order of protection. He had to pay a fine. He had to do domestic violence classes, hours of community service. He had to get a mental health evaluation. That was the penalty. While I was waiting to hear back about these criminal charges, I started contacting organizations. I contacted PETA and the Humane Society of Chicago. The Humane Society of Chicago was actually really helpful and said, you should do a civil lawsuit because as you're going through it, if new evidence comes up, then maybe that could help with the criminal case. I was like, okay, well, this really might be a good idea. My aunt had been researching organizations and she sent me the name of the ALDF, which is the Animal Legal Defense Fund. I contacted them and they have been my biggest support just the greatest thing throughout all of this because they set their top attorney on my case and then they set an investigator. They were working with me for a few months looking into the case, getting the necropsy reports, looking at the images, hearing my witness statements. They had a forensic veterinarian who they work with look at my case. And I think it's really cool because she's like a top dog in the industry of animal welfare and animal abuse. She looked at my case and she wrote up a couple reports about what happened to Kirby and Daisy and said, without a doubt, this was abuse. This is what happened. Here's what he did and how these injuries were sustained. Here's how that was directly from abuse and not an accident. So she created this report. I do remember the attorney I was working with from this nonprofit. Once the report was ready, she emailed me and said, just so you know, this is going to be really hard to read. 
I had gotten her email as I was about to leave for work. And of course, I couldn't wait to see what had happened. But that's when I found out for sure what had happened to Daisy. To hear the report of the injury sustained to Daisy, I went home and I stayed home for two days. I missed work because I was so devastated, just sobbing. My coworkers were so incredible. They sent me treats, a balloon and stuff just because they knew how hard this was for me. It was through the ALDF that I finally got my answer that he had abused both Kirby and Daisy. Part of what was so hard of learning the truth about Daisy is I had lived for eight months knowing that he probably had killed her, but not knowing how. I had thought that if it was the injection, that at least she hadn't suffered. At least it wasn't like a physical torture like what he had done to Kirby. To find out that he had kicked her and he hurt her just absolutely devastated me. In this analysis, the veterinarian had said, your average neighborhood veterinarian wouldn't know to identify these signs because they don't see abuse like this all the time. But forensic analysis, this is what her whole career is. And she has 20 plus years of experience. Even in her report, she was like, yeah, I get this original veterinarian might not have caught it, but that doesn't mean it's not it. The police rejected that forensic analysis and said, these nonprofits have good intentions, but we can't really do anything with it. I felt like the entire time the system was gaslighting me. The detective said, well, the initial vet who saw Daisy that day didn't list this as abuse. Therefore, we can't do anything with it now. That's why I pursued this civil lawsuit, not only to call him out myself, but saying, okay, well, if the system isn't going to do something, I can still do this myself. January of 2021, both police departments called me and said they were not pressing charges because there was insufficient evidence. When I found out that the police and prosecutors were not taking my case and they were not pressing charges for Kirby and Daisy, that absolutely devastated me to the point that I stayed home from work that day. I was just sobbing and screaming and so incredibly upset. I had already started my lawsuit a month prior. That was something I wasn't really sure about doing at first because I was like, maybe the criminal charges will happen. Doing a lawsuit I have to pay for on my own. February of 2021, that's when we started going through court. At this time, it took my abuser a few months to get served with the lawsuit. During that time, my attorney and I were going back and forth. I had different things that I could give to my attorney. And so then she organized everything and we filed the lawsuit. It took a few months to get him served. He was very wishy-washy with the court system. He claimed to the court that he didn't have any money. So he was representing himself. He was very casual with the court. He did not ever turn the camera on because this was all via Zoom. At one point, the judge said, turn your camera on. He came up with some excuse of my camera's not working, but I'm here or something. He just never once turned the camera on at any point during the lawsuit. I was doing pretty well with the therapy, but once the system completely abandoned me, I fell into a deep depression. I continued seeing my therapist. I ended up getting back on medication. I wasn't confident in my ability to get through things because the system was so incredibly traumatizing. I remember I requested a Zoom call with the head prosecutor from the area where he was from. I asked for a meeting about trying to press for charges and also saying, why not? 
the entire 45 minute Zoom call, she told me how he would have character witnesses who would defend himself. I went through and I was naming certain things that had happened. Everything that I brought up, she would try to negate and say, well, you should have done this. It just looks bad on you. There was one thing and why I would not recommend turning over my phone. The day I escaped him, when I was at my parents' house, I had been Googling symptoms of dog poisoning, trying to figure out what he had done to Daisy. And then I was Googling criminal repercussions. What is the law in Illinois? What could he be charged with? And this prosecutor used that against me and said, it looks suspicious that you were looking into that. When I, as a survivor, was trying to figure out what he had done to Daisy. And so this 45-minute call, she was just blaming me the entire time. I actually ended up emailing her a few months later, and I really laid into her. I said, you are supposed to defend victims, and you traumatized me profoundly. I let her know that what she did to me was not okay. And then I didn't want to hear an email response, and so I blocked her email for a little bit. To me, it was just about getting the message out. Also, I was dealing with family at the time. Some family was really supportive. And then quite a few family members were telling me to stop, to give up the fight, that they were concerned for my mental health and well-being. To have family telling me to stop was an added layer that really contributed to the depression that I fell into. But I decided to go forward with the civil lawsuit because to me, Aside from any criminal charges, it was very important for me as a survivor to call him out by myself. For me, one-on-one to say what you did was wrong, I am going to hold you accountable for what you did, was just everything. That's why I went forward with the lawsuit, and I'm very glad that I did. We were coming towards the end, finalizing things with their lawsuit towards the end of 2021, which is a year and a half after everything happened. I, by this time, had moved out of state due to all the trauma and worry for my safety. My attorney actually was like, if we're going to go to the media, now's the time. I had started sharing my story on TikTok because I know that other people had shared their story that way as well. I wanted to just use my voice and get it out there and stop being silenced by the system and being told that you're wrong and you're crazy and all of this. Then my story was reported into the newspaper. I didn't realize it until I sent family and friends to go get me a copy of the newspaper while I was at work. They sent me pictures and they were like, you're on the front page. So my story was on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times. And then it had a two-page spread in the middle of the newspaper. That to me was also very validating. My story matters and they're getting it out there because it's important. That's how several of his other victims had found me. To date, I've had maybe 15 of his former victims find me. And probably a dozen more people who just knew him and worked with him somehow. We all have the same story where he starts by threatening family. He says that his dad's going to hurt them, that his dad has ties to the government. And so to see that other women had gone through this was just very validating for me. I was home for Christmas visiting my parents. It was Christmas morning and I was checking my phone. I saw I had gotten a DM on Instagram. And it was from this woman who had also been abused by my abuser. She said that she was abused by him a month or so after everything happened with me. Her story was almost the same as mine, where he had started by threatening suicide, saying that his dad was part of the government. She was with him being abused for three months. 
how that absolutely devastated her and how she had seen him abusing his dog on a couple occasions. I was in contact with my attorney. She was like, you should straight up call the FBI. I reported it and I said, here's what happened. He held me hostage that day. The FBI was like, your local police didn't do anything. And I said, nope. I started looking into it. And the pond that he had taken us to that day with Kirby was in Will County. He crossed county lines and that was the game changer. I was like, Will County hasn't dealt with this yet. I started looking into their website and I saw that they have an open door policy where you can just go and knock on their door. The day after Christmas, I got this whole file folder ready to go of all pictures of evidence, the vet report, my lawsuit, my witness statements and everything. My dad and I drove down to where this prosecutor's office was. We got ready to go inside and it was the middle of winter. So it was so snowy and cold. But I walked up to where the office was and it said, due to COVID, please call because they weren't doing the walk-in service. We got back into the car and I called the number. I explained to the woman who answered, I have this case about animal abuse. She gave me the name of this prosecutor and said, he works with this a lot. I'm going to pass along your information. I got a phone call from this prosecutor. He was just asking for details about my case. I just gave him a quick overview over what he had done. He told me to file the police report officially in the town where it happened. I booked a flight back to Chicago for a few days later. The Monday after New Year's, I woke up at like three in the morning. I got ready. I went to the airport. I took the 6 a.m. flight back to Chicago. My mom picked me up at the airport when my flight arrived around 9 a.m. and she drove me directly to the police station. I filed the police report. After that, I didn't really hear anything from this prosecutor. He had been very nice and said, all right, here's the information you need to get like a FOIA request to find out how the investigation is going and everything. He helped me fill out the paperwork. And then my mom just drove me back to the airport and I was literally in and out of Chicago within hours. I had a petition of thousands of signatures of people who wanted justice. And since I hadn't heard anything from the police, I just mailed it to them. We were coming towards the end and finalizing things with their lawsuit towards the end of 2021. The judge said, okay, you have to get this stuff in by this certain date. My abuser just wasn't getting the stuff in. So then my attorney requested a deferment where we just went because he wasn't showing up on his side of things until February of 2022 when the judge was like, we're ending things. You've had your chance. We're going to go forward and I'm going to declare this judgment against you. And so I had to testify in front of the judge and in front of my abuser, which was very nerve wracking, obviously, for me. I had to testify to everything that he had done in his presence. And he had the opportunity to ask me questions, but he didn't. He had said to the judge, I can't say that I didn't do this, right? And the judge was like, nope, you can only ask questions about the events. Then the judge said, I'm granting you this judgment of $162,338. That was just huge because you don't win that amount just because the defendant wasn't showing up. The judge looked at the case through and through and said what he did was horrific. Clearly, he's liable for this to a great, great extent. 
One thing about this case is that he will not be able to ever file bankruptcy for this judgment. That's huge that this judgment will be with him for the rest of his life. He has claimed that he doesn't have any money or finances. So yes, I would be able to garnish his wages upon finding out who his employer is. You can garnish wages so that he has to start paying back the judgment through his income that way. A few weeks after we won the lawsuit, my attorney calls me and says, this prosecutor from Will County called me and my attorney told him the case is solid. We won the lawsuit. Then I didn't hear anything for a few months. I had started to make peace with that being the justice I was going to get. In the middle of July, I was actually doing another interview for another media outlet. She was trying to get a feel for my story and she was like, I'm reading this article and he was charged for Kirby. And I was like, what? No, he wasn't. He was never charged for Kirby. She said, well, I'm reading this article right now that says that he was charged for Kirby. And I said, nope, that never happened. What is the date of this article? And she said, oh, at the end of June of 2022. This was not an article I've ever seen. I'm on this Zoom call with her. I'm on camera, like she's recording this. I open up my email and I see the headline of the article says that he was arrested and charged with felonies for torturing this dog named Kirby. And there's his mugshot. She was like, oh my God, Sarah, is this how you're finding out? I was like, I need to call someone. She very graciously hung up the phone and I immediately called the prosecutor that I had spoke to that day in December. He looked up the case and said, yes, he was charged with three felonies for six counts in total, two counts of animal cruelty and one count of animal torture. He's charged and he's going to be arraigned on August 1st. I'm like losing my mind. My voice is breaking and I was just like, thank you so much. I have my confirmation straight from the prosecutor himself. After I got the news, I texted my family frantically and I asked them for an emergency phone call. They all got on the phone call and I just screamed, he's been charged. And I just broke down sobbing. Everyone was in shock. Ironically, he had been arrested the day before my birthday, which I thought was kind of a little poetic. He was officially charged. Since then, I have been obviously following the case, following the court updates through the county website. In November of 2022, I went to court for the first time. A lot of this is just pretrial, where his defense attorney is going through discovery. He has a public defender. They have insane caseloads, but it's been a very ongoing process. We're coming up on almost a year and a half now of charges being pressed and court's still ongoing, obviously. For the justice system itself, I wish that they would have more compassion and work better with the victims. As we can see, like with my own experience and all the victim blaming that I experienced from the police and the prosecutors, I just wish that they would have more compassion and work well with the victims, notifying them of updates and saying, hey, I know it's been a month since we touched base. Here's what's going on. I remember in February of 2023, my mom called me and said, my abuser had skipped court a couple of days before. And when you have felony charges, you're not allowed to miss court. So I called my dad. He explained that they had a police officer calling him, trying to find out information about my abuser and his whereabouts. I called this officer's phone number back. The next day we connected, the police had organized a task force to find him. It took them another day or two to locate him and they arrested him for skipping court. 
what I think is so poetic about all of it is it was a U.S. Marshal who arrested him. If you remember, he had threatened that his dad was a U.S. Marshal who would cause extreme harm to me and my family. He had to go and post bail again in front of the judge for missing court. That delayed court a few months. They had to get things back on track. Then come July of 2023, so this past summer, I was able to attend court this time with my fiance. That was the first time that he was really able to see my abuser in person too. My parents were there and his attorney said, all right, we're ready to move forward. We met with the prosecutor after that who said, they're either going to look towards a plea deal or this will go to trial. At the beginning of this October, they had another court date where they were supposed to have this final pretrial. And once again, he did not show up to court. The judge said, no, I'm not putting out a warrant for his arrest right now. We'll see him back in November and I'll say he has to be there or else. I guess he came to court the next day. They got everything figured out. The next court date is set for November of 2023. The prosecutor said once trial is set, that's when he'll start working with me and connecting with me. I have a lot of anxiety about that and testifying in front of court. But I know that this is the prosecutor's case and I'm just there to testify as a witness. I'm so sorry any of this happened. What carried you through the heaviest or hardest portions? I really attribute therapy to a lot. While I was escaped, I found a new therapist. I already started meeting her virtually during the week that I was escaped. And so I hit head on my healing and recovery. And that just did wonders. I had had my other therapist that I had worked with for seven years before my abuser made me stop seeing her at the start of everything. I was already looking for a new therapist. I knew I had sustained great, great trauma and domestic violence. I was just looking online for therapists and this one dealt with trauma and domestic abuse. I messaged her and she was just phenomenal. I was with her for a year. We did EMDR therapy, which is very centered towards trauma. Also having the support of so many people friends and family who have just been my biggest cheerleaders the whole time too. I think it has brought us closer. Both of my parents found their own trauma therapist to work through their side of it because they experienced trauma with this too. I think that really helped us navigate things. I also got new pets. I have two dogs and two cats now. Both of my dogs are actually the biological siblings of Daisy, which it's very comforting for me. My dog, Rosie, was actually born a month to the day after Daisy died. She was the first puppy born in the litter. She was black and white, just like Daisy. And I knew that that was Daisy's gift for me. I named her Rosie because when Daisy was born, the breeder had named her Rose. Also, me moving out of state, really helped with my healing to not be in the environment anymore, to move into the mountains. All this nature and scenery around me was very healing as well. My therapist had said I went from surviving to thriving. I have since gotten married. That is huge too, to go from my experience into a healthy and happy marriage, I think is the true testament to all the work that I've put into. I think there's also justice in moving forward. 
and continuing other relationships and being in happy and healthy relationships, that is also a huge form of justice. These abusers, they will not ever experience true love or happiness. When victims and survivors do, that's just all the more power to us. Sharing my story and helping others is very healing for me too. Connecting with other victims of my same abuser, that still happens to this day. Just yesterday, I was getting a new message from someone. It's come to the point where people call me and ask for advice now. I've been through the system too, and here's what they did to me. They just want someone to hear them and validate them. That has been extremely rewarding for me. If I can share my story and use my voice to give people a place to go, that is just so incredibly fulfilling and meaningful to me. I know it's been healing to share, but what's been the hardest part of sharing? I think sometimes talking about the trauma itself can obviously be hard. I still feel shame about it sometimes. People who victim blame, they'll say, why didn't you do anything? Like, this is your fault too. And then I look back and I say, yes, I did everything I could to try to get in his way and stop him. Being a victim of abuse, there's a lot of shame and it's not fair for us to deal with it, but it's what it is. So I look back and I say, oh, I wish I could have done this. But I couldn't because who I am today and not being abused is someone completely different than the person being abused and so completely under his control. That's just a feeling that I grapple with sometimes too, the shame and wishing I could have done something. I said sometimes to them, it is a profound privilege for them that they didn't experience what I experienced. What's a privilege for someone to sit there and be able to judge my experience I would say to anyone going through hard times like abuse or dealing with the system, just remember that you are so strong and that there are always other resources that you can go to. And if the system is telling you no, then go and find someone else who will tell you yes. I have really been blessed with criminal charges in the case here, but for a while I was making peace with a lawsuit. And there's also justice and peace in moving forward with your life. There are so many ways to go about it. Do what you need to for your own healing. And you are so strong and there's always support and resources. We can help you find it if you need, but there's so much out there and that you are not alone. Thank you for sharing all that you did and being so open with your journey for the benefit of others. You're an exceptional human. I really appreciate connecting with you. And I always say like when people come to me with their stories, I'm sorry that we can connect on trauma and hardship, but like more power to us. In mid-November of 2023, Sarah attended her abuser's hearing for the felony charges for the torture and death of Kirby. A date was set for a trial jury, which should take place sometime around June 2024. To stay abreast of her story and show her support, please consider following her podcast, Sarah's Story, which is linked in the episode notes. This episode is dedicated to Kirby and Daisy. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please visit the episode notes for resources. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Next week on What Came Next. She said, you have to tell. So she took me to the police station. I told them. I said, it's a serial killer out here. The police officer did. He called one of his co-workers and said, listen to this. They stop making fun of me. 
What Came Next is a Broken Cycle Media production co-produced by Amy B. Chesler and Tiffany Reese. If you'd like to help support What Came Next, you can leave us a positive review, support our sponsors, or follow Broken Cycle Media on Instagram at Broken Cycle Media. Check out the episode notes for sources, resources, and to follow our guests. Thank you again for listening.